So we're not talking about a, a complex, hyper-spiritual experience with lots of like rituals and traditions. When Jesus calls his disciples, he, he calls them by name and, and tells them to follow him. He says, follow me. And so their active obedience in literally getting up, leaving what they were doing, and then following literally behind him as he walked down the road marks the beginning of their discipleship. And it would continue on as being the heart of their discipleship process, following Jesus, following and doing the things that he does, responding in obedience as he calls us to do new things. That, that's what I'm talking about when I say discipleship. So I don't want us to be intimidated by, by the idea of discipleship. Uh, we're, we're just talking about following Jesus Christ. And at the same time, um, what we're talking about this morning is, is the other end of that spectrum. We're not to take discipleship as something to be taken lightly. The call of following Jesus, as we see it in Scripture, is not something done at a distance, not something done half-heartedly, and, and not something done without paying a, a very significant cost to ourselves. And in this case, uh, if you're wondering, is Tommy fired up about this text? The answer is yes. I'm very, very excited about this sermon this morning because the text has just been very real and alive to me these past few months as I've been looking at what it looks like for discipleship to happen at Mercy House. So this morning, fired up and ready to go. And I see some people I haven't seen in a long time, so hi, Show Walters. Sorry, had to, had to say that. Um, so let me, let me pray. I'm a little scattered right now. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you reveal yourself to us. God, I pray this morning. As, as we search your word and as we look um, at your call to discipleship, Lord, um, that we would be able to count the cost um, and that as we see your surpassing work, that we would gladly pay any type of cost um, required to follow you. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, we looked at the text right before this, which is where Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. It's a big moment in the Gospels. And we talked about how the Messiah or, or the Christ is understood as the anointed one. The, the anointing referencing to the fact that that would be the way that God called and, and ordained his kings over Israel. And not by having a physical crown made and placed over their heads, but by pouring oil onto their heads. This was the way that God said, you are specifically chosen and ordained to be the king over Israel. And so there, there's not a lot of people who see Jesus uh, and who are following him around um, who have the correct conception of who Jesus is. And that's what we saw last week. There are thousands of people following around him around. But as we learned in the text, the majority of them um, had, had really a, a wrong understanding of who Jesus was. They were either listening to some of the rumors that were going around about him, thinking he might be John the Baptist. Um, they, they, they may have been leaning heavily into their tradition or their intellectual understanding and knowledge of who he could be as Elijah. But Jesus really was most concerned with who his disciples, who, who his followers thought that he was. Not necessarily the crowds, his disciples. So he turns the question on them. And what's revealed is that Peter and the other disciples, as they followed Jesus and interacted with Jesus and spoke with Jesus, they personally discovered who Jesus was. And, and not just as a good teacher or a philosopher or just a nice guy who fed lots of people, uh, but as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the God-anointed king that Israel had been waiting for all of these years. 
This wasn't something revealed to them by other people. Um, it, it wasn't through rumors or, or through their understanding of even scripture. They came to know Jesus as God through their personal discipleship, their following of Jesus. But it's one thing to know who Jesus is, and it's another to obey and to follow him. And that's what we see in the text this morning. As, as Jesus begins talking about discipleship um, and following him with more clarity than he ever has before in this gospel. And it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit startling. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25, it's going to be on the screen behind me. I encourage you to open up your Bibles and, um, and read along with me. In verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus would not make a good salesman. I mean, he probably would be the best salesman ever, but he, in this moment, he is not a good salesman. And I'm just throwing this out there. So before I get struck by lightning, let me just make my point, right? But Peter just has this eureka moment where he's realized who Jesus was, and he's ready to go all in. He's like, you're the Messiah, you're the king. You would expect Peter to be like, I'm all in. Where do I sign? I'm with you to the end, which is probably what Peter's thinking, right? We know Peter, very zealous man, very excitable. Jesus just needs to close the deal, right? But he, he, he doesn't necessarily. Jesus responds by laying out what it would look like to follow him in very stark detail. See, what, what we're seeing is there's, there's no fine print with Jesus. There's no hidden fees or unaccounted costs that, that are going to sneak up on you as a follower of Jesus. If Jesus sold a car like he was selling discipleship here, he'd be like, okay, here's a brand new car, right? It's going to depreciate in value the second you drive it off the lot. Warranty is really, really bad. You're going to pay a ton of money in maintenance over the next few years. There's currently a core case surrounding a possible recall of the steering wheel, the brakes, the seatbelts. Paint scratches really easily. The transmission is going to fail after about 10,000 miles. Your tires will eventually catch fire and explode. We require 100% down in cash up front, and you can sign right here, right? Jesus just lays it all out. It's a really good thing that Jesus isn't selling cars, right? When Jesus calls people to follow him, he doesn't do so with, without making it explicitly clear what the cost is of following him. I mean, look at what he says in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This image of taking up your cross, uh, it, it would have been understood by his disciples. And Jesus wouldn't be the first person to experience the capital punishment of crucifixion. He wasn't going to be the last one either. It was a horrible, horrible method of execution reserved for, for the worst criminals, exposing them to shame and mockery while enduring an incredibly excruciating death. And, and here's what's important to consider. No one at this time carried a cross for fun. It, it, if you were carrying a cross, it meant that you were sentenced to death and were carrying your own cross to where you would be crucified. Everyone who carried their cross would die on a cross. It was a one-way trip for anybody who would take up their cross. So listen to what Jesus is saying here. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to be prepared to die. How often? Every single day. These words are for non 
uh, non-followers of Jesus who are hearing and understanding what the cost of following Jesus is for the first time, uh, but it's also for those of us who are age-old believers of Jesus as well, who still must choose to pay the cost each and every day in following Jesus. See, discipleship is not this one-time decision. It's a daily, lifelong commitment to following Jesus. So notice the words take up, right? Jesus, uh, following Jesus is not something that, that's thrust or forced upon you. It's not something you can be forced to do. It's not something that's either passive or inherited. Discipleship, as Jesus describes it, means taking up your cross as an intentional, informed decision made each and every day. And for some of us, as followers of Jesus, we, we struggle. We struggle with this. It is a struggle. We struggle to pick up our crosses each day, to consciously make this decision to follow Jesus um, today, this morning, no matter what cost, even if that cost is our lives. That is a hard decision to make every single day. And listen, I get it. Not only um, is it a high calling, but you also have to account for just this wide range of emotions and, and, and motivations that we experience uh, changing every single day. So I know what it feels like to wake up just on fire, ready to go. I'm a morning person, so most days I'm like getting up and ready to go um, and feeling like I can just conquer the world for Jesus, right? I've had those days, and maybe you have too. But I also know what it feels like to wake up in the morning and not even have the strength to think about getting out of bed, right? Wide range of motivations and emotions. And I know what it feels like even to be so busy, right, have so many tasks to be thinking about needing to get done that the thought um, of, of taking up my cross isn't even registering in my brain some mornings. So I, I don't want to downplay either depression or real-life hardships or just responsibilities that seem to pounce on us as soon as we open up our eyes in the morning. But, but Jesus isn't oblivious to these either when he calls his disciples to take up their crosses daily. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we do that challenging, almost seemingly impossible thing? How do we get to the place where we can consciously and definitively uh, take up our cross, choose to die each day? I think Jesus provides the necessary precursor. Look at 23. He says, and, and he said to all, if anyone come af would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So in order for us to take up our cross, we have to deny ourselves first. I mean, think about it. The level of submission and commitment required to be willing to die for something, right? If you're in that place, your personal wants and your personal desires, though they might exist, they can't be playing a major role in your decision making. They can't. They have to be denied. And that's partly what Jesus is getting at here with, with an understanding that the the, the call to following him at any cost does not fit nicely with the natural desires of our minds and hearts, or else he wouldn't say that you need to deny them, which on one level should comfort us. If you thought or thinking that following Jesus, uh, this following Jesus thing is hard, you're absolutely right it is. The call to discipleship requires a denying of ourselves and, and a dethroning of ourselves in our own lives. We are acknowledging Jesus as our Messiah, as we saw last week in the sermon text. We're seeing him as the Messiah, as our king, 
And there are not two thrones in our lives. Denying ourselves means denying our self-lordship over our own lives and submitting to Jesus as our Lord. If we're not able to pick up our crosses each morning, if we're not willing to follow Jesus at any cost, it means that we're still holding on to the throne of our lives in some way. We're, we're, we're not willing to give up a portion of control. We're not letting our wants um, and, our, and our desires uh, drive our decisions uh, and our actions, or we're still letting them drive our decisions and actions. We're holding on to the lordship of our lives. But if you want to be a disciple of Christ, as we're reading here, whether it's for the first day or for that thousandth day, we must deny ourselves and consciously choose to follow Jesus that day, no matter what comes our way, no matter what that cost is. That's what Jesus is laying out here. See, discipleship is, is, is not easy. It's very simple. Just follow Jesus. But it by no means is easy. I think it's perfectly fair as we're reading this to ask, why would we want to follow Jesus then? This is a high calling to submit my entire life to, to choose death in order to follow Jesus. And if Jesus stopped here, it'd be terrible, right? I'm glad that he doesn't. Let's take a look at what he says. Verse 24, it says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is not a word puzzle or a riddle, which it can appear to be if it's your first time reading it. And Jesus is saying that whoever wants to save his life, meaning whoever wants to hold on to his life, my, my own lordship, my own wants, my own desires, I'm going to end up losing my life forever if that's the place that I remain. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake, meaning denying myself, denying my lordship, denying my wants and my desires in the pursuit of following Jesus, I will actually have my life saved for all of eternity. What Jesus is pointing out here is that there is more to your existence than this life here that you have. There's an eternal picture that we need to be considering beyond what we can see just right in front of our faces. And Jesus is pointing out the very real possibility that you can have all that you want in the world. You can, you can get rich. You can be successful. You can have that dream spouse, right? That, those 1.9 kids, which is the average American household size, right? You can have that big old house with the white picket fence up front. Whatever your dream life, your life dream is. But if you hold on to that vision at all costs and try to pursue that snapshot picture of what your dream life looks like, instead of following Jesus, you're going to experience an eternal death. But if you deny your desires and lose your dream and your life in following Jesus, you will experience eternal life. Now hear me, I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with those things. I'm not saying that they can't be gifts and blessings from God for us to enjoy and, and to bless others with, but if we submit with wholehearted allegiance to achieving and maintaining the things of this world instead of Christ, we'll face a horrifying eternity apart from Christ. Nothing is worth more than knowing and following Jesus for eternity. Nothing. Nothing. Do this with me. I want you to close your eyes, right? 
You don't have to be self-conscious. Everyone's doing it at once. I want you to picture just your, your ideal dream life right now. Do it with me. Just well, what does it look like? Maybe think about what you're aspiring to. What, what do it look like to get to that place? Think about the people that are around you. Think about where you're living. Maybe it's on a nice, warm beach, which would be great right about now. Think about what you're doing for work. Think about what you're doing for fun, for vacation. Think about your hobbies. What are you doing for, for fun? What do you want to take up that you've always wanted to take up? Hopefully you have this beautiful montage in your brain right now. So come back to reality with me. Here we are. Nothing that you envisioned is better than knowing and following Jesus for all of eternity. Unless what you envisioned was Jesus himself, right? Everything you envisioned is going to pale in comparison to Jesus. Not saying that the things that you envisioned were bad, but they are not going to surpass the value of God. No material gain, no amount of toys, no achievement, no fame, no success, no vacation, no hobby, no amount of friends or children, no ministry success, no role in the church, no amount of spiritual impact that you can have on the people around you is going to be better or greater than knowing Jesus, savoring Jesus, and enjoying Jesus for all of eternity. That's what we need to understand. Jesus is worth trading anything and everything for because his value and worth are not fleeting and momentary like every single thing in this world, but they are true and eternal forever, forever. This is the benefit of knowing and following Jesus. As we ask, why would I want to follow Jesus? This is it. He's the greatest value. He's the greatest object of value in existence. This is is why we can deny ourselves, our dreams, our lordship, and take up our cross each day. Because we know that the treasure of Christ, of knowing Christ, is far greater than anything and everything in this world. We can't choose to deny ourselves and take up our crosses if we don't know this, believe this, and experience this. But even if we do, we can forget this, right? So often, can we forget this? If we're, if we're not rooted in the truth of Scripture, if we're not in the context of true fellowship where truth is being spoken to us on a regular basis, we end up being tossed to and fro like ships on a stormy sea, and we forget how valuable Christ is. So that's why we're preaching truth every single Sunday. That's why we're all encouraged to be reading truth and Scripture every single day. And that's why we're all encouraged um, to, to be in the context of fellowship with other believers who are speaking this truth into our lives. Reading scripture, being in the word, it's not a requirement for being a Christian, but it's a requirement for having truth fed into our lives so we can make the daily decision to follow him. The value of Christ is something um, that we're going to fight for for the rest of our lives to both remember and more fully understand. Jesus himself knew this. Let's read on, and, and, and you'll see what I mean. So in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Denying ourselves and being willing to follow Jesus at any cost 
is not this the theoretical exercise meant to weed out people who, who just won't go the distance, right? It's not a thought experiment. Jesus makes it required for his followers because as we follow Jesus, we will face moments that call upon self-denial and where the cost of following Jesus is great. And we know that we'll face these moments because Jesus forecasts these moments for his own ministry. Last week we saw this in verse 22. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And we might think, well, that's what Jesus has to endure, right? That, that's his mission, his purpose. But the reality is that discipleship, following Jesus, means following Jesus, right? So whatever Jesus is going through, that's what we're called to follow him through. It means we're going uh, where he's going, we're going. It means what he's doing, we're doing. It means what he's experiencing, we're also experiencing, that's why he's calling us to bear our cross, right? Because he knows that that's where he's heading. That's where he has to go. He has to carry his own cross. And in Luke 9, 22, Jesus is forecasting for himself and for us this suffering, this rejection, and this death. As we swing back to verse 26, why would we have shame in Jesus? Why is Jesus getting to this point of shame? What, what does shame look like? Um, because there's a clear warning here that, that shame in Jesus and his words will result in Jesus being ashamed of us when he comes back in all his glory to judge the living and the dead. And I don't think that this is a shame that's like a, like a little, oh my gosh, like a, like a light head shake and like, I'll just come on in anyways. I'm so ashamed of you. No, I, I think that this is like a Matthew 7, 23, I, I never knew you depart from me kind of shame, a terrifying shame. So when we see this kind of neon flashing warning, uh, warning sign, we ought to pay very close attention. So if we can be honest, right, there's plenty of reasons that we'd be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. Plenty of reasons to be ashamed of Jesus. So what he teaches isn't always popular, right? It isn't always popular. There's people that we spend time with, whether it's our coworkers, our families, our friends, what he does can be hard to understand sometimes. It's not always uh, easy to understand the things that he's doing. So they can be misconstrued, misunderstood if you're not digging in. The mission that he's on is incredibly offensive. It requires people to understand that they are, um, that they are sinful, broken messes that are not able to fix themselves. The way that he does his mission, uh, the method can be seen as weakness right? He's going to go suffer and die. These are all reasons. If you notice, though, all these points, um, these things that we'd be tempted to be ashamed of are not necessarily because of the points themselves, but because of how they rub against somebody else that we're interacting with. The, the, the shame isn't just in Jesus. The shame is in how our association with Jesus affects the, pe the way that people view us. And we, we can be ashamed of Jesus because of a fear of how people will perceive or treat us. We can be ashamed of Jesus because of how it brings unwanted social pressure toward us, whether that's being rejected by our friends or, or just not accepted by other people. We can be ashamed of Jesus because of the discomfort that would come socially when we align ourselves to him. We can be ashamed of Jesus when our pride Right? Our pride rises up and not wanting to be looked down upon because of what we believe about Jesus. There's plenty of reasons for shame. 
all of which are going to be revolving around how we're being perceived by other people. But again, the reason why we're tempted to be ashamed is because we're trying to hold on to our lies. We're trying to hold on to this vision that we have of ourselves, of of wanting to be accepted, of, of wanting to be loved, to be appreciated, to be respected. When we deny ourselves, denying ourselves, it means more than just denying these inner wants and these desires, but it means denying the image of ourselves that's on display for other people as well. You following me here? A part of following Jesus requires the self-realization and acceptance that that we are broken, that that we're sinful messes in need of somebody else to save us, to help us. It means acknowledging that we can't fix ourselves. And these realizations are seen and perceived by the world around us. They're not secret. This can be a huge temptation as this is exposed to those around us to feel ashamed that we need to follow Jesus. If we don't deny ourselves, if we don't deny our desire to to appear put together, if we don't deny our desire for affirmation and respect, then when being associated with Jesus or his teachings threatens one of these things, we'll be ashamed of Jesus. That's just inevitable. That shame can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Um, Shame defined is... This is a quote from from the dictionary. It says, uh, it's an unpleasant self-conscious emotion typically associated with a negative evaluation of self, withdrawal, motivations, and feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, and worklessness. When we feel these things as a product of our relationship with Jesus, I think we're going to be tempted to do a few things. And these are just three. I'm sure there are more. The three major things that we do when we experience shame in Jesus is one, we try to just cover it up, right? Try to cover up or maybe even lie about it. So an example of this would be if you're at a coffee shop and you're sitting there drinking a coffee, maybe you're reading your Bible and someone comes up and you immediately feel that sense of like, oh, I have my Bible out in public. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I do my whole Bible study. I lay at my concordance and I'm in, right? Some of us are not like that. Right? So when you see someone or maybe someone that you know, there can be this temptation. I'm going to close my Bible. I'm going to put my Bible away. Right? If someone comes up to me, I'm just going to nonchalantly make it clear that I'm not doing my quiet time right now. When we feel that shame, we can cover it up. Or maybe we can withdraw and just hide. Right? So it's not just about putting the Bible away, but actually if we're in, in a place where we feel ashamed of Jesus, we might just book it. We might just leave. Right? And, and not want to associate with that person that is causing, bringing up the shame in Jesus. We might, in in some ways, distance um, or disassociate with Jesus. We see this with Peter, right? If someone's saying, hey, aren't aren't you that guy that's following Jesus? He's like, no, not me. Mm -mm. Nope. Or we might kind of downplay our relationship with Jesus, right? There's an opportunity to share what's going on that weekend, right? And they're like, hey, what'd you do this past weekend? You may have gone to persist. You may have prayed for 12 hours, right, at church and like done all this this, this really fruitful spiritual stuff, but you say, like, oh, not, not much. Watch the game, right? Good game, good weather, went out for some coffee, right? That is a, is a way that we disassociate or kind of distance ourselves from our relationship with Jesus. Any time that we see these things happening um, in our lives, I, I think it's a, an opportunity for us to diagnose that shame and to dig in to where it's coming from. And as you work 
backwards. I, th- I think my prayer is that God would reveal to you the worth of Christ, the worth of Christ. It all goes back to that. If we're covering up our Bible when a friend comes by, it's because we're ashamed of Jesus. And if we're ashamed of Jesus, it's because we haven't denied ourselves and our own personal emotions and feelings and desires to be liked, to be loved, to be respected, whatever that is. And if we haven't denied ourselves, it's because we're not seeing Jesus' surpassing value as being greater than anything else that we value in that moment. So reminiscing, pondering the insurmountable value of Christ is going to be a direct remedy for any shame we might feel in Christ. If you feel ashamed, think about the value of Christ. If you feel ashamed in front of other people, consider the greatest value in your life. Is it Christ? And if it is, then that's going to dismiss any shame that you might feel. Let me read this last section for this morning, and we'll finish up. Luke 9, verses, uh, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds, have air, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me, go, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I think at this point in the narrative, um, what we're starting to see are people interested in following Jesus outside of the disciples whom he calls. And I think what I want to see after the last section, right, is like a brave heart moment where everyone is just fired up and ready to follow Jesus at any cost. But really, that's not what we get here. I think what I'm learning about Jesus is he's not recruiting people. He's not calling his disciples based on their emotions. He doesn't get people fired up, amped up, and shouts, Who, who's with me? Let's go! Right? That's not Jesus. He's wise enough to know that emotions are wildly volatile and inconsistent. And he wants sober judgment when people choose to follow him. People who understand and can evaluate the cost of what it would mean to be his disciple. And look at this, uh, look at this first person. He's actually responding in the way that I, I would kind of want, right? Um, he, he's not waiting to be asked to follow Jesus. He, he's volunteering to follow Jesus, and, and that's awesome, right? Look at their exchange, though. Verse 57, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This man says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Probably not really knowing what that means. But Jesus responds by saying, I have no material security here. I'm not relying on a savings account. I don't have this emergency fund. I don't have the security of knowing where I'm eating tomorrow, let alone where I'm laying my head down to sleep tonight. I I think he's saying this to combat any notion that the huge crowds and the amazing miracles might imply that being a disciple of Jesus is like joining this rock star movement that's really glamorous. That there's going to be fame and glory and comfort and security. The decision to be a disciple of Jesus is the exact opposite of that. 
It's a denial of self and a readiness to die. I think Jesus discerns that this this kid is a little bit overzealous. He's he's excited by the crowds and the healings and and some of the celebrities surrounding Jesus. And Jesus responds in in such a pointed, humble way. He says, I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't even know where I'm going to lay my head down tonight. That's what you're signing up for. We don't know what happens to this young man, but the reality checks for people who want to follow continues. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a tough one because it seems like a really reasonable request. Jesus calls this man to follow him, and the man says, let let me bury my dad first. One thing to understand here is that the man's dad is, is actually likely not dead quite yet. What this phrase means is that my dad is, is old or nearing death, so, so let me see to him and, and, and his affairs before I go and follow you. There, there's actually a legal requirement for him um, as the firstborn son, if he is the firstborn son, to do this. So it, it's not only a reasonable request, as we would see it, um, he's bound by law and cultural expectations to fulfill this duty of burying his dad. So it's important also to note that, that this seemingly reasonable request uh, had a potentially indefinite timeline. It, it wouldn't be clear if his father would die in a week, in a month, or a year. And nevertheless, Jesus' blunt response speaks to the cost and the importance of discipleship. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and preach the gospel. And this seemingly insensitive response drives home the urgency and the importance of Jesus' mission and his calling. The man is hard-pressed to decide between two things, and it's not a decision between a good thing and a bad thing. It's a decision between a good thing and a God thing is what he has to decide between. Jesus is calling this man to follow him in a way that requires denial of self and denial of others, even denying the law itself. We're seeing here that discipleship requires that Jesus be the number one priority above all else, above our jobs, above our friends, above our families, even in some context, above the law. When Jesus calls us to follow, he calls us to follow now. This might be kind of hard for us to hear, but there's a strong challenge against some well-intentioned backburnering well-intentioned backburnering, saying, oh, I'll, I'll get to that. Or, oh, I'll respond to Jesus um, and, and what he's calling me to do right after I just take care of a few of these things that I need to take care of. There, there is nothing that we need to, no role or responsibility greater than the call of Jesus on our lives. Verse 61, the next person here. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This third guy um, who Jesus is calling is just asking to say goodbye to his friends and his family. 
So remember that following, the call to follow Jesus here is not just like a change of mind or a change of heart. For these disciples that he's calling, it's literally a call for these people to leave everything that they have behind, everything that they've known behind, and to follow him in his indefinite ministry, right? So isn't it reasonable for this guy, right, to go say a quick goodbye to his friends and his family, possibly, probably for the, for the, for the last time? So while this may seem on the surface, <coughs> excuse me, uh, may seem reasonable on the surface, what it communicates is something that Jesus actually wants nothing of. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, does a fantastic job breaking down this specific verse. He, he says in this book called The Cost of Discipleship, it's really famous, in a chapter called The Cost of Discipleship, which happens to focus on this section of the text that we're preaching on this morning, which also happens to be the book that we're reading through as a staff this semester, and it's actually in the chapter that we're assigned to this week. So it's like kind of crazy. Just wanted to let you know that this is, I don't think this is a coincidence. So let me read what he says. He says, although he, and this is the man, although he is ready enough to throw his lot with Jesus, he succeeds in putting up a barrier between himself and the master. Let me first. He wants to follow, but feels obliged to insist on his own terms. Discipleship to him is a possibility which can be only realized when certain conditions have been fulfilled. The disciple places himself at the master's disposal, but at the same time retains the right to dictate his own terms. But then discipleship is no longer discipleship, but a program of our own to be arranged to suit ourselves and to be judged in accordance with the standards of rational ethic. By making his offer on his own terms, he alters the whole position, for discipleship can tolerate no conditions which might come between Jesus and our obedience to him. The call to follow, the call to discipleship is always on Jesus' terms. We need to be incredibly careful when we respond to Jesus, whether for the first time or the millionth time, Yes, but. Yes, but. When we do this, we're inserting our own terms into what God is calling us to do. Whether it's just a simple follow me as I begin your discipleship process, or maybe way down the line when you've been a believer for, for years and God is calling you to do something and you respond with, yes, but. God is asking for wholehearted, whole, wholehearted um, response and decision in the affirmative to him so again when we find ourselves in this place which we will be at we can diagnose it when we are hesitant or want things in our own terms when responding to jesus's invitation to follow him or to serve him in some capacity um, it's because we haven't denied ourselves fully we haven't surrendered the throne completely and when we haven't denied ourselves because uh, when we're not denying ourselves, it's because we're not valuing Christ rightly. When we're able to see the worth of Christ, we can deny ourselves and say yes with no stipulations or any other conditions. Jesus' response to this man is a farming metaphor. Farmer, any farmers out there? One. I don't need to explain it for you, but for the rest of us, including myself. So when you're talking about plowing a field, it, it was tough work that required all of your strength. Um, it's the process of turning over the soil so that the old crops and the weeds uh, would be buried down and start breaking down in the soil. And, and it would allow you to kind of bring up some of the nutrients that are in the deeper parts of the soil to the top. 
And, and when, when you did it, you drive a plow through the soil, and the farmer would keep his focus on something really far off in the distance to, to make sure that he's keeping, or he or she is keeping a straight line. Very similar to driving, right? So when you're driving today, you're not aiming just five feet in front of the car, right? And if you don't know this, please listen to this right now, <laughs> right? You want to aim high. You want to aim off into the horizon where you're going, not just what is immediately in front of you. And Jesus uses this metaphor to show this man that following Jesus required the same laser focus required by a farmer when plowing a field. So if the farmer looks right or he looks back, like the plow is going to go wherever he's looking. He's got the steady laser focus on the horizon. And plowing wasn't just about aiming toward that focal point, but it required holding on as well, right? You're only valuable as a plowman, as, as a farmer plowing a field, if you're actually holding on and doing the plowing. So take your hands off and walk away. You're no longer plowing the field. Row by row, plowing a field was a tedious task, required persistence and endurance to complete. So these two things coupled together kind of complete Jesus' lesson on discipleship in this section. To be a disciple of Jesus, to, to follow Jesus requires a denial of self, and taking up our crosses, a practical following of Jesus, and, and emulating his life, a correct valuing of Jesus as greater than anything else that this world has to offer, a wholehearted devotion and obedience to Jesus, a singular focus on Christ, and the endurance to hold on to Christ until we finish our race. That's what it takes. That's the cost of discipleship. And like Jesus, we at Mercy House don't want to make it seem like following Jesus is a breeze. The apostles we read about in the Gospels, the faithful disciples throughout time, and the mature believers here in this room will tell you following Jesus is quite possibly the hardest thing to do. Make no mistake about that. But they've been able to endure because the, the worth of knowing Jesus and the promise of his fellowship for eternity is greater than any hardship that's going to come our way as we follow him. As we talk about focus and steadfastness, um, this is what Jesus demonstrated from, the, from this point on in the gospel um, in his ministry. And his focus would not be on a crown that he would receive as king or the comforts of his heavenly kingdom, but the cross that he himself would have to take up in obedience to his father. That's where his eyes are right now. As we read through the narrative, it says that his face was set like flint on the cross. He was to, to Jerusalem. He was ready to go pick up his cross. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. That last night, as he stood on the doorstep of, of what he had been focusing off into the distance for, for so long during his entire ministry, Jesus would articulate why it would be all worth it for him. The cross that he was about to take up would be the ultimate price to pay for us to be able to receive God's grace. And while grace is free to us, for, for us to receive, it comes at an incredible cost that demands a cost, costly discipleship. Not as payment for grace, no, but as a response to that grace. 
So hear the invitation to discipleship, whether it's your first time responding to it this morning, um, or you've heard it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, our God did not die so that we could follow at a distance as a member of one of the crowds. He died so we could personally and intimately know him. And out of this experience, the fullness of life and fellowship is something that we get to experience with our creator. And Bonhoeffer's most famous quote comes out of this book uh, that I quoted earlier. In the same chapter, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As you take communion this morning, um, know that this is what Christ is calling us to. And as we choose this morning to deny ourselves and take up our cross alongside Jesus, remember that our death is what is going to bring us life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done to allow us to be in relationship with you. We thank you for giving us yourself the greatest, most valuable treasure imaginable. And I pray that as we reflect on that, that we would see you as, as a treasure, uh, treasure hidden in a field, God, that we would sell anything and give anything away so that we can have this treasure, God. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would soften our hearts to the gospel. Lord, that you would show us your surpassing value, God, being far greater than anything else there is in this world. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never taken